You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Projection booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is the one and the only Paul Mao. I came from the people. They need to adore me. So Christian Dior me from my head to my toes. And also joining us is Mr. Todd Nathanson. Hi. Um, so what happens now? On this episode, we are looking at the 1996 film from director Alan Parker, Evita, based on the stage musical by Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice. It is the story of Eva Duarte, a girl from the backwaters of Argentina, who makes her way to Buenos Aires, climbing the social ladder until she ends up with Colonel Juan Parón, who soon becomes the country's fascist dictator. We'll be discussing the film, the musical, and a lot of other things along the way. If you haven't seen Evita and don't want it ruined for you, well, please... Please turn off the podcast and come back after you have. We will still be here.
So, Paul, I'm curious, what is your history with Evita? Thank you so much for having me today. Uh, I'm an opera singer by trade. I sang at the New York City Opera for several years, but Evita was one of the first musicals, like full-blown, fully-staged uh, productions I ever saw. It's right around the same time you and I met Mike at the University of Michigan. And uh, I think randomly I might have gotten a couple of comp tickets. It was at the Power Center in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And I took my sister and her best friend, Heather. And to this day, you know, I'm 48 and they're both 46 or so. It really moved us. So, like, it really took us by storm. It hit us. And this is, what, five years, 91 or 90, right before before the movie, right? So this stage production hit us in my, like, I, I would call it my nascent or my pre-musician days. Something about the power and, and uh, obviously the drama of the uh, stage production hit us. And uh, I remember my sister ran out and bought the album. and But she wasn't a music file or a, or a theater file or any whatever file you want to call it. But, you know, it just hit us as, you know, small town kids from the Midwest. It, it, something really struck a chord for all three of us. And how about you, Todd? Well, I did a, a web series a few years ago called Cinema Donna, where I reviewed all of Madonna's movies. I'm not uh, much of a theater person. So that was my first, just a couple of years ago, it was my first viewing of Evita the movie or in an interaction with much Andrew Lloyd Webber at all, really, the, watching the movie. I'm, I certainly remember it being big in 96, but then it uh, immediately kind of faded from the conversation. Since then, I have seen more Andrew Lloyd Webber's stuff, and I think I get it a little more now, or at least I get what it was trying to do. But I cannot say I have uh, Paul's experience with it of, you know, adoring Patti LuPone or whatever. <laughs> I adore Patty Lapone, but uh, yeah. And let let me also be frank. Like now, I'm primarily a director of plays and musicals, and a, and a voice teacher myself. I have not yet had the pleasure or the privilege to uh, direct and produce Evita, but I did uh, produce a giant production of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, and a big production of Phantom of the Opera, both at Southwestern Michigan College, and they were huge successes. People love them. People love them. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that said, uh, the conventions of all of them have a lot of things in common with Evita, so I'm excited to talk about different things. I've seen a few Andrew Lloyd Webber things, but actual live performances that I was in the audience for, the only one I have seen is a touring production of Fan of the Opera, and that one strikes me as fairly atypical of the Lloyd Webber canon, I guess, because it's very plotful with a, a beginning, a middle, and end. Whereas uh, Evita and Jesus Christ Superstar and Cats don't strike me that same kind of way. Even though you have pretty much the ultimate end for Jesus Christ Superstar and Evita, that they both die. And they both die <laughs> when they're 33, and both of their corpses go missing, which is interesting. Oh, that's true. Wow. They were like one after the other, right? Jesus Christ Superstar, then Evita. Yes. I didn't think of it that way. I was just thinking structurally. But yes, that actually makes a lot of sense. And with both of the albums, they're both double albums. And when it comes to that fourth side, I usually kind of stay away from them because I love how joyous the first three sides are. And you get to that last side and it's like, you know, Jesus dies for so long. I mean, that song of him, and that's air quotes for the listeners, that song of him dying is just like, okay, yeah, I don't really need to hear this. Like, I sure I'd love Carl Anderson when he starts singing you know, Jesus Christ Superstar, but when Jesus is up on the cross it's like, alright, that's enough for me, I'm checking out. You don't want it to last for three days and three nights? I really don't need that. I'd rather look on the bright side of life. <laughs> well played. That, there's a movie with an ending. 
My first time seeing uh, Evita was a local area production. I think it was somewhere down near like Flat Rock or something in Michigan, River Rouge somewhere. Anyway, it was actually a friend of mine was in a local stage version, and he was not any of the main characters. He's one of the members of the chorus, and for me, he was the shorter hours guy. There's a moment where everybody comes and they start singing about what they want, and he was the guy who came on and said, just kept teasing him about that completely. Like they should have made the whole musical about the shorter hours guy or that he should have held that note for like, you know, five minutes and been like that opera singer in the Bugs Bunny cartoon. Exactly. And then he leaves and the gloves still there and he starts turning all the different colors. So that was my first time with that. And actually I saw another production of Avita also local theater. I think we were traveling somewhere to the west side of the state, nowhere near you, Paul. And it was just like Avita was playing at, I don't know, a high school or something. It was like, okay, cool, great. But that was my majority of seeing Avita. Finally, I saw a touring company of it and I bought the record of it right after we, I saw Andy and uh, Evita, and I fell in love with it. Absolutely in love with it. I had no idea about the history of it. I didn't know about the concept album. Uh, eventually, I would see, like, what's this white version of the album? I don't know what this is versus this uh, black and white version of it. Kind of like when I was a fan of Jesus Christ Superstar and it's like, I'm listening to the music soundtrack and I'm just the, the, the movie soundtrack. And I'm like, what the hell is this Brown album? What is this? I know. <laughs> like, because the, that was the cool thing with Lloyd Webber and with Rice is that they would do these concept albums before they would make the musical. They did that with Jesus Christ Superstar. They did that with Evita. So they're not bound by the stage. They're not bound by how many pieces they have in the orchestra, by how many singers they have. They basically just go balls out and say, this could be a musical. Let's just create this whole album. And they are bound basically by what I was saying before, four sides of a record. And that's it. The only limits are time. And I thought that was really super smart that they would do that, that they thought outside the box by like coming up with this idea first before they even tried to stage it. I asked my uh, friend, who was my sister's best friend at the time, for her perspective, and I wanted to just offer up what she said as a female. She said, besides the obvious draw of the music, which was diverse, accessible, especially for a teenage girl with no vocal training, and beautiful, Evita was the first musical she ever saw that offered up a female lead who took her future into her own hands. I was a small-town girl who dreamed of one day living in the city, Chicago in my case, and doing great things, and Evita did just that. Was she perfect? No, far from it, but that didn't matter. The how was much less important than the simple fact that she did. And in the end, she wasn't even brought low by others. It was her own body. That makes a difference because it meant she had, not, had maybe she not gotten sick. Who knows what would have happened? Perhaps she would have been the vice president, maybe a corrupt vice president. But still, <laughs> you know, I just wanted to share that's Heather McGee who uh, shared her thoughts with us. I watched a documentary about Ava Perone and about the making of the Evita musical and just so folks know, I'm going to constantly go back and forth between saying Avita and Ava, talking about the same person. Though there is a real person, there's a movie character, and we'll try to differentiate as far as that goes, but she's known as Ava Duarte at the beginning of the musical and eventually becomes Avita Peron. Same person. So just FYI. Even today, like 2020, if you were to go down to Argentina, from what I understand, because I haven't been to Argentina, you go down there and 
from what I understand, it's about half the people would say that she's a saint and the other half would say that she's just a fucking disaster and that the whole idea of Perone's reign is a disaster. And I'm just like, okay, in 50 years here in the United States, are we going to have the same thing when it comes to Trumpism? It's just like... Great parallel. (laughs) You know, if we're talking about the same documentary, I watched it and they said very specifically that this is... Avita is one of Trump's favorite works of art. Puts a new light on this musical. Well, even when he came out after having COVID-19 and was on the balcony of the White House, people were just like talking about the Casa Rosada. I was like, yep. (laughs) Yeah, arms up. I I keep picturing this being Ivanka Trump's favorite musical, you know. The parallels are, well, it's it's not perfect. The, The Ivanka Trump did not come from a small village in Argentina, to put it mildly. As I began to watch those documentaries and think about it, we might have a big discussion later about whether Madonna was the right choice, but boy, Madonna had her own interesting narcissistic way and her own love hate with our society. And uh, oh, yeah. in the end of, I thought Madonna was a fine choice, but we can get into that later if you want. I thought she, mm-hmm. she's an interesting human to have to embody <laughs> that. Same, mm-hmm. I'm sure Todd has lots of opinions on that. I, I, I do quite a bit. Yes. As we're reading about, the original writing of the Avita concept album slash stage play, I kept hearing that Tim Rice heard a program on the radio and that that was the inspiration. And then I've also read that there was a documentary on TV called The Queen of Hearts, which was his inspiration. And I don't know which to believe, but I know for sure The Queen of Hearts was around the right time. And then it's very interesting, and I do know for sure that he went to the BBC and and watched the Queen of Hearts documentary. It's fascinating that the end and the middle songs in this, this like pro Peronista song that they end and have as a like a, a temp music in the in the middle, that it is the money came rolling in. I mean it's basically that exact song. It's really crazy. <laughs> Blessed fun can make your dreams come true. Here's all you have to do, my friends. Write your name and your dream on a card or a pad or a ticket. Throw it high in the air and should our lady pick it. She will change your way of life for a week or even two. Name me anyone who cares as much as Ava going to get into song choices and what they heard and then wrote you know we can get into the the whole thievery of the whole situation but actually in my understanding of motives and motifs and things that andrew lloyd weber was very guilty of in things like phantom of the opera there are only a couple of uh obvious instances in uh, some of the themes in evita so we don't have right. to go too far down that road in evita but it's interesting that you know tim rice or uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber, what their impetus was to to uh, write this, to dive down this road, but it's full of drama, that's for sure. 
I mean, I've picked on other composers in the past as far as like when they recycle themselves. And Andrew Lloyd Webber is, you know, he's not above that. He definitely has recycled himself. If you're going to steal, steal from yourself rather than from other people. So I have no, you know, real problem that he would take little motifs from other areas and say like, okay, I'm going to recycle this. I'm going to give it a new context and I'll put it in here. So like he did the score to, what is it? The, uh, the Odessa papers, the one with John Voigt and was able to take some of those things and put them back into Evita. That's cool. It's just always funny when you hear little snatches of things and go, oh, wow, okay, you really pick those, you know, notes up and put them back in here. The, the one thing for sure that we can point to is that pro Pyrenista song, but it's ironic that they take that and then flip it and make it into the song about Avita and her cause celebre, her, her charity and basically robbing the entire country blind. Like I said, some of the other shows are worse, but I just wish he would have been a little bit more overt if he's going to write a musical entitled Phantom of the Opera and he's mm-hmm. going to steal from operas. Obviously, the <laughs> opera files would know that. So right. <laughs> he stole like his biggest hits, Memory from Cats and Music of the Night from Phantom of the Opera are taken specifically from Turandot and Fanchula de West. So those are like specific operas that like people are like, ah, oh, that's exactly the theme from that song. And that's exactly wow. the Jazz and um, memory I can't remember is from uh, I think from Fanchula, but so so uh, like I said, he's not as guilty in Evita, but and so there's a I like that there might have been some toying with like Phantom of the Opera. Now I'm going to just ne- you know nestle in some some what do you call it, Easter eggs for for opera lovers to, to hear these things, but I don't think he was ever quite of overt enough about it. <laughs> Because it was a concept album, they knew that they were not going to have spoken word. There are not the moments in between where it's like, you know, oh, hey, Ava, come to the city and we're going to, you know, uh, we'll make you a success. It was all sung from beginning to end. It is all wall to wall. There's like a little bit at the beginning where it's like some dialogue from movie, like we're setting this in a movie theater. And that's when the announcement comes over the air that Ava Perone has died. But for the rest of it. It is song wall to wall. And I don't know, Paul, if there are terms for these different types of musicals where one is all singing, all dancing versus like the old Eddie Murphy joke about like, hey, Elvis, would you like some lemonade? And then it turns into lemonade. That refreshing drink. Yeah, there's one term and they call it opera. Yeah, opera versus musical. Evita is an opera. So anything that's through composed or through sung is an opera in its classical form. So Evita, and don't get me started on the difference between Andrew Lloyd Webber's 
speak singing and what wretched achieve should sound like. My brain was blowing up last night when I was sending Mike a couple of uh, <laughs> clips of me just saying, hello, Mike, this is Paul, and now I will be singing what I'm thinking. And it's not too far off the beaten path from <laughs> Andrew Lloyd Webber's transitions from scene to scene where he just said, now, Avita, tell us how you went to the zoo or whatever. <laughs> you know, like, I, I, I can't stand some of those wretchedities, but that convention is truly what opera is meant to be. Uh, and fortunately, he usually leaves us in, in the right key. But other than that, uh, I would think through composed, through sung, and just opera is, is supposedly a piece of all sung from beginning to end uh, musical theater in a way. The other thing that I really like that they do is taking the same, and please correct me if I'm wrong with this, the same musical motifs and being able to have those play throughout the musical and be able to recontextualize those. So like some of the very first thing that we get is Jay, and we'll talk about Jay, Jay saying, oh, what a circus, oh, what a show. And then, you know, that same phrasing goes through so much of this and even into, you know, don't cry for me, Argentina, you know, and as for fortune and as for fame, it all rhymes the same music will rhyme throughout this and just the way that they will take those and be able to sometimes turn them on their heads and just be like, okay, now here's something that somebody said that was very positive, And now here's something that somebody said that's very negative. I am, you know, not a classical music theorist of any kind, but like, for, as what I understand, that is what makes uh, a concept album into a quote rock opera. That's what Tommy does. That's what the wall does. That's, that is what this musical does. That's what qualifies it as an opera, the recurring motifs. Yeah. And uh, that's what makes it rock. And, or in my opinion, like I want to focus on the word pop for a second, because it's, it's interesting to hear both of your perspectives. Uh, Mike saying you like that. So I think the layman, and I don't want to call you layman entirely, but a non-musician or just, a, uh, you know, at face value loves something that throughout the two hours of watching something is repeatedly familiar, right? So that same theme, after I've heard it five times throughout the piece, I can go, da-da-da-da, share my coffin. Like, I can almost <laughs> sing along with it, and I leave the theater humming that. It becomes part of our person. Like, it, we embody it immediately. We go home, we buy that concept album, and is suddenly like something that is just blossoming out of us the whole time, and we never forget. It's a, definitely an earworm, but I think there's some genius in that composition to make you continue to hum it, think it, to be like, that's mine now. I own that. Well, that's the real danger with this movie for me and this musical is that if I listen to this or if I even think about it, then it gets stuck in my head. Like you said, an earworm. It gets stuck in my head for fucking days, if not weeks. There were times when I was in college and I would be listening to this and I would wake up singing these songs. It's just like, oh my God. It was like, it got to the point where I had to put it back on the shelf and be like, I'm going to wait a few years before I listen to Evita again because it is too much in my brain. And that might sound like I'm exaggerating, but I'm so not. The other night I woke up and I was like, oh yeah, we're going to be recording about Evita pretty soon. And then it's just like, Perone is a fool. And I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> get out of my head. This is going to be there. And if those phrases are beautiful and, and lyrical and legato, you don't mind singing memory. Da, 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 da. And it's actually Shostakovich, right? But so, right. so thinking of the, the first time that Andrew Lloyd Webber or Tim Rice sat down and scripted this, 
you know that they were hearing some of the same things. And, oh, that would be really pretty here. Oh, that would be great. How about Bach for, uh, you know, for this one moment in Evita? Um, but some of them, oh, my God, what I just took a note last night. Like, I never want to hear it again. And I, you know. <laughs> money, 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 money. Well, what's the one? Uh, Ava Perone. That one. But yeah. I want to be a part of being a big apple. I'm like, please shut the fuck up. That and is an ugly song. Let me hear that. <laughs> it's the worst song ever. And that you can't like, even understand. I mean, Antonio Banderas, you're like, what are you singing, dude? Like, sorry. <laughs> That's when I just like, sorry, even saying it, but I won't be able to not hear that for the next three months. Right. I'll tell, I'll tell you this much. I, I don't really have that problem with Evita so much, but like even mentioned Jesus Christ Superstar to me. And I'm hearing, like, what's the buzz? Tell me what's happening. What's the buzz? Tell me what's happening. And that just over and over again for the rest of the day. And then what makes it dangerous, and we'll definitely talk about this more in the second half of the show, is you get so used to this stuff. You know, whether you get used to, you know, like with Jesus Christ Superstar, uh, our friend John is a huge friend of that concept album. And then I'm a huge fan of the soundtrack album. So when he hears the soundtrack album, he uh, clenches up a little bit. And I do the same thing for the concept album because you get so used to the exact phrasing to the exact lyrics and they will tinker, tinker with the lyrics as they go through this. Like in the concept album, there's a song that they revised for the movie that was not in the the Lupone musical, the Ellen Page musical. It was just in that Julie Cummington concept album uh, about it was like basically the history of of uh, politics in Argentina. And there's this whole thing in there of uh, Che selling insecticide and they removed that insecticide stuff in the movie version but it was in that original concept album and so then even then i'm like well what about the insecticide stuff guys like that's what i'm used to hearing so when i hear antonio banderas sing it without it i'm just like wait a second this isn't the right thing so even like two words that are missing from a musical phrase i can be like wait a second that changes that and that changes the context and it just it drives me crazy because yeah you get used to the thing and then you hear something slightly different and it's it's basically like stepping on a duck it's like i don't need to hear that noise and then imagine a true avidophile i think he's <laughs> watching this movie for the first time saying um a madonna doesn't sing that song <laughs> ava doesn't right. sing that song and then b the mistress finally shows up and she gets where am I going to? That's all she gets to sing. And Boom. she says, don't ask anymore. That's it. That's a That's a rough one because it, uh, I, I'm a big fan of Madonna, but Andrea Kaur is a much better singer than Madonna. So you get like a hint of what this could have been. And then, you know, uh, off you go, Andrea Kaur. You have insight as to how that went down? And did Madonna just put her foot down and say, my favorite song, I'm singing it. That's what I got to figure happened, but I don't have the hard facts behind it. That's what I assume, too. But also, having seen the movie and not having seen the musical, it seems a bit of an extraneous character. The name of the, the musical is Evita, and it feels right to me that Madonna sing this song in the movie version. Is It sucks to be Andrea Core, I guess, but... There are five main characters when it comes to Evita, and that mistress is one of those. Like, she's not a main character, but she gets a song, and it's such a beautiful song. There's a lot of things 
that perhaps work on stage that do not work in a movie in this particular movie. Todd, what else works there? It's a great time to give the actress a big old break. Oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The movie, you don't have to worry about that, but the actress is out there sweating her ass off and needs a big costume change. Get what's her name out there to sing uh, another suitcase. Lupone, Page, our our divas, they are out there singing so much. I mean, to hear Lupone in an interview, I think it was with like the Today Show or something, and she's just like, I don't do anything. The day that I perform, I don't do anything until I get out onto the stage. And then she's out there singing almost the entire time. And Jay, you know, Mandy Patinkin is like, yeah, I would lose like two and three pounds a night because he's out there singing, dancing, and he's on stage throughout the entire thing. It was crazy. Well, that Shay costume looks uh, looks pretty heavy. I'll- There's a debate about when Shay becomes Che Guevara. He ever does? I mean, go ahead. Well, and that's the thing. is like, is Che Che Guevara? Is Che not? And some people will say, oh, he was only Che Guevara when Hal Prince came to the scene. And Hal Prince was the director of the musical, and he brought a lot of the staging to it. Like I said, this was a concept album, and he comes in, and he's like, okay, we're going to stage this thing. We're going to come up with the idea of the doors for the uh, the way that we introduce the lovers and have them, you know, oh, it, it, it's sad when a love affair dies, all this kind of stuff. Okay, great. We're going to have the rocking chairs when we do this stuff. We're going to, you know, we're not going to have the insecticide song. We're going to have the art of the possible song. Okay, great. So we come up with all these things. And then it's like, how Prince tends to get credit for, I'm going to take this Che character. I'm going to turn him into Che Guevara, but I don't buy that. I think that he was Che Guevara before because of the insecticide, because Rice wrote, Hey, I found out that Che Guevara was a chemist. So I wanted to bring that in. And I made this thing about the insecticide. You know, Che Guevara came up with an insecticide. Okay, great. So, I think it was Che Guevara pretty much through the whole thing until we get to the movie when they suddenly say, no, 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 he wasn't originally Che Guevara. He was just this dude, Che. Che's like Joe or something to the United States. Buddy. Yeah. Yes, Che Guevara lived in somewhat of a similar time as Ava Perone. She died when he was, what, 17? Something like that? Maybe she was an influence on him, maybe not, but I kind of like this idea of this historical figure commenting on the past. And he's almost like the Judas to Jesus. Yeah, that's great, Jesus, what you're doing, but, you know, you're going to fuck up, dude. So if he's not Che Guevara, it doesn't work as well, right? Because he's constantly giving us, you know, with so much drama throughout the movie, no matter what level of success or fame or pseudo happiness uh, the Perones or the Peronistas get, we immediately get the the antagonist line from Che saying, yes, but what about the people? Yes, you did this. And even after they're loaded with money, then very next thing, it's just these constant interruptions of anything resembling like a ripple. Like it just immediately says, yeah, but fuck you. I'm Che. Yeah, but fuck you. I'm Che. You know, and so I'm trying to make sense of that. I'm like, all right, if this narrator is meant to be a liaison between segments in time or scenes, why is he always giving a shit? So it makes sense to me that Che would do that or the character or the people's person of Che. But when you, like you said, if you strip him of his identity in the movie, it just kind of keeps coming back going, yeah, well, fuck you. <laughs> right. Yeah, well, fuck you again, Ava. Like, it's like, wow. It's a thing that strikes me as a thing that works very much on stage to have this other icon 
uh, blasting this one icon. It, and I, now that I think about it, it could work in a movie, not necessarily the one they made. Like, if they were going to make the movie the way they made it, I don't think Che Guevara would have any real place in it. They'd have to make a very different movie for Che Guevara to make sense in a beat of the movie. I think they just assume, well, everything Lat- Latin America, everybody knows these two icons, and you know who yeah. Che is, so why wouldn't but, he give Evita shit? The strange thing about it is, like, if Che is Che Guevara, then you understand his what he is and what he means, and he's just another character. When he's just the omnipotent, faceless narrator, then he is the voice of the movie. So that's a completely different character then. And it's a completely different tone for the movie. I think we're all saying that we're a little confused by it, right? Yeah. <laughs> at, at best. Just so you guys know, I get a lot of shit because I do pick on Trump. And I thought maybe after November I would stop picking on Trump. But I have a feeling that I'll be kicking him while he's down forever now. We compared a little bit of, of Trumpism, or I did, to Peronism. This came out in 76. This is right on the verge of Thatcherism, or Thatcherism is happening. So there was a little bit of like, hey, Thatcher could be uh, Ava Perone. Okay, that's interesting. To the point where, apparently, when the uh, British were going down to the Falkland Islands, they would play Don't Cry For Me, Argentina, which was a real huge dick move that they're like doing this that said the music the concept album comes out in 76 the musical comes out in 78 and almost immediately there's interest in let's turn this into a movie you know if you go back to jesus christ superstar it's almost the exact same thing but with that they turned it into a movie you know right on schedule quote unquote with this one it's okay i think it's 82 well, even before Ken Russell gets involved, Alan Parker actually comes to them when it's the concept album and it says, hey, I would like to make this into a movie. And they're like, yeah, no, we're going to put this on Broadway first and then we'll talk to you maybe later on. So Alan Parker's involved way back in 76 and then eventually kind of gets dropped from it. They go to Ken Russell. Ken Russell comes up with his idea. And it's interesting. We're just having this whole Che talk. His version of it was you had two narrators. One is Juan, and I'm trying to remember, I guess his name would be Juan Duarte. He's Evita's brother, and you see him from the beginning. The movie starts with this whole idea of Eva Perón's father dying, and then that carries through every single version of the script that we get. So Juan is there with Ava through this whole thing. So it kind of makes sense because she actually put her brother in the cabinet. So he's kind of based on a real life character. And then you also get Che, but this Che is not Che Guevara. This Che is a guy who works for a newspaper. And it really plays into the idea of the Perones putting the foot down on the free press. You are fake news. So there's Jay, who's trying to get a story published and comes in as a reporter. There's Juan, who's her brother, who's there with her as a member of the cabinet from her childhood into her being, you know, the wife of Juan Peron. So it was interesting. And then sometimes, like, on the Rainbow Tour part, and we'll talk about that, it would actually be them as the chorus, Jay and Juan, one as a reporter, one as the family member. And they might go back and forth as far as was the Rainbow Tour a success? I think it's very interesting that they initially wanted to go with the director of Tommy, and they wound up with the director of The Wall. 
And right in the middle of there, you get Oliver Stone. And Oliver Stone, after Russell, the, the story is that Russell insisted that Avita be played by Liza Minnelli. There was also this thing of, uh, I think it was Tim Rice was like, no, you should really go with Elaine Page. It was whoever he was dating. I think he might have been dating Elaine Page. Barbara Streisand? Is that what you just said? <laughs> no, Barbara Streisand was one of them, right? She, Barbara Streisand was in the running for a little bit. Apparently, she was just like, yeah, no, I'm way too Jewish to be playing this Catholic leader of Argentina. Thank God she said it. Thank God she said it, because I was going to – I didn't want to say it. But. It could be a Wikipedia lie, but I think the producer that they were working with – I forget the guy's name – was dating Streisand, one of the people that was considering yes. a film, right? It was John Peters, the guy who almost gave us the uh, giant spider in um, Superman. Mr. Giant Spider, yes. I'm glad as soon as I say John Peters, your mind went to Giant Spider as well. When you said Streisand, my mind went to John Peters and his Giant Spider. So, <laughs> Yeah, and there was even talk, and I need to confirm with Elliot Gould about this, there was talk of him being uh, Juan Perón. I was just like, oh my god. <laughs> It would be a reunion because they were married uh, at one time in the 60s. They would come back together and rekindle their romance on screen. That would be crazy. Uh, It would have been crazy for him. After Russell drops out, eventually Oliver Stone gets involved. That might sound like the weirdest fucking choice in the entire world. But if you think about Oliver Stone's filmography and you remember that he was trying to get a Noriega movie made for years. So he's got interest in... North American politics, you know, he he had put out Nixon. He was thinking about moving down to Central America and doing Noriega and then go to South America and do Ava Perone. So it would have been like this trilogy, but unfortunately that didn't happen. So, but that was also the time while he was involved. And I think it was, uh, Salvador 89. He had already made Salvador by that point, but in 89, uh, he was supposed to do it, and that was when Madonna initially put her hat into the ring. So think about 80s Madonna already coming in and saying, I want to be in this role. I mean, I'm trying to remember when her heyday in the 80s was. I want to say, what, 85, 86, something like that? Personally, I can do without her. I used to like her early stuff, borderline. When she got out into that Papa Don't Preach phase, I turned out. Yeah, I looked it up. They said that 1986, she dressed in a white gown and went in and said, I want to play this part. That was right after Like a Virgin and just as True Blue dropped. So she was young, like she was, but she knew what she wanted. But she stuck with it and 10 years later made it. Like, that's pretty, pretty telling. And that's why I kind of love Madonna for the role is like these other directors or, you know, were, were dragging their ingenues along with them to say, Oh, let's have Liza Minnelli do it. Or oh, I'm going to have my girlfriend, Barbara Streisand, you know, but like Madonna came in on her own accord and said, I'm going to do this. I want to do this. I don't know, Todd, if you have any more info on that. Where that Just that I have, um, I have, you know, read about Madonna. I saw a terrible TV movie about her rise to the top. Uh, and I saw, and she is pr- planning her own uh, biopic that she is going to direct herself coming up about her rise to the top, about the similar time period in her career, it all very much sounds like the story we see in Evita of just ruthlessly climbing to the top, leaving people behind when they get in her way or when they're holding her back and uh, shocking the world with her feminine wiles. I think Madonna is just the perfect perfect person for this, much more than Streisand would be because Streisand is just far too respectable 
and Madonna has always ridden the same vibe of Evita in this movie, at least, even prone in this movie, of, like, I am scandalous and I do not care. And I do not care if you look down on me. I will use that to my advantage. It does not take a genius to figure out why Madonna wanted this role specifically. It's all out, all out of fucks to give. Yes. If you're going to put out a very popular big movie, which Avita could have, maybe was, you also make the knockoff TV version of it right around the same time. So it's really interesting to see that in 1981, there was all, there was a TV version of Avita Perone, and that was Faye Dunaway as Ava Perone. And from what I understand, just a little trivial aside, I think Frank Perry saw Faye Dunaway in that. TV version, and then cast her as Joan Crawford in Mommy Dearest. That's what uh, Justin Bozung, who's writing a biography of Frank Perry, was just like, oh, did you know that? And I was like, no, I had no idea. So this one really powerful, bitchy actress from Argentina gets cast as this other powerful, bitchy actress in, uh, in Mommy Dearest. And then in 96, right around the time that Alan Parker's movie finally comes out, there was another Ava Perone movie. I don't know if there was one around any of the times that Oliver Stone might have released this, because there were a few times where it was announced, yes, this is happening, and then it got pulled back, and then, yes, this is happening. And he quit the project in, like, 94, and then it almost immediately got picked up again by Alan Parker and we had Stigwood producing and just like finally all of this stuff aligned. It was funny. Like Alan Parker comes back from the past. Stigwood's been there the whole time. Madonna comes back from the past. And now we put this whole thing together and yeah, they almost even went with Michelle Pfeiffer as Madonna, which was interesting because, uh, Sorry, as Evita. I'd like to see Michelle Pfeiffer as Madonna. And you can even find the demo of her doing Buenos Aires out there. But it's really funny because it's just her part. You don't have the other people singing, like no Che or anything. So it's just her part of it. It's it's kind of a, a strange demo thing. And you won't hear that, like how people like isolate uh, Freddie Mercury's vocals. And they're just like, listen to the ver- you know the power of Freddie Mercury. You won't ever have that with Michelle Pfeiffer, I'm sorry to say. It seems crazy. You must believe There's nothing calculated Nothing planned Please forgive me If I seem naive I would never want to Force your hand But please understand I'd be good for you She can carry a tune Definitely can You know, Fabulous Baker Boys But she's not Knocking it out of the park well, I mean, Madonna is not exactly Patti Lapone either. Yeah, we'll definitely talk about that in a few minutes. Let's go ahead. We're going to take a break and play an interview with Sir Tim Rice himself. And we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. You obviously love podcasts, but are you also a fan of movies and television? Do you want to listen to a show that reviews entertainment honestly and casts pretentiousness to the wind? that debates both film and TV topics in a fun, good-spirited way, while still getting to the heart of why we all love them so much. Then don't miss the award-winning weekly podcast, The Hollywood Outsider, now available on your favorite podcast app or at thehollywoodoutsider.com. Do you like movies? Do you like bids? Do you bathe in raw meat? 
Do you dance under the fiery sky of Ra? Daisies threaded through your man chest mane? Foolish question. Yes, we all do. But do you do it listening to the podcast from the After Movie Diner? If not, then you're missing out, and you may or may not spend eternity in insufferable torment wedged between Simon Cowell and Piers Morgan in an elevator that smells of death. The After Movie Diner is a website dedicated to movies. New, old, large, small, and of every genre. There are written reviews, interviews with the famous and interesting, and a weekly podcast with comedy, reviews, interviews, a variety of fascinating and flatulent co-hosts, and music to tap your toe to. So why aren't you on board? Get there or miss out on the podcasting sensation of a generation. One that feels like being slightly tongued by an over-enthusiastic cocker spaniel. Find us on iTunes, Spreaker, Stitcher, TalkShoe, and over at AfterMovieDiner.com. Do you like great music? Do you like in-depth podcasts? Do you like the idea of putting great music under the microscope? If you answered yes, no, or fish to any of these questions, Love That Album is the show for you. Every month, Morris and a fellow music fanatic discuss a particular album in detail. They'll cover the performer, the history behind the recording, the musicianship, common thematic elements between the songs, and how many drugs were consumed during its creation. Well, maybe not so much of the last bit. So, if you want to hear a podcast bringing perspective to great rock, jazz, folk, punk, and sea shanty music, then subscribe to Love That Album Podcast at Apple Podcasts or download directly from lovethatalbum.blogspot.com. I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. You like classic movies? How about classic TV? Over at Forgotten TV, I've covered everything from obscure Saturday morning TV to short-lived shows like Otherworld, The Phoenix, The Highwayman, and Cliffhangers. You can find the show over at Forgotten.tv or at all the usual podcast places. I hope you'll join me soon at Forgotten TV. I uh, just got done reading your autobiography last night, and I'm waiting for part two. When's that coming out? Oh, gosh. Um, good question. I'm, I'm beginning to work on it. I'm doing these podcasts at the moment and getting back into my part one, reminding myself what I said. And also some of the podcasts are about eras that weren't in part one, obviously, because it happened since 1979. And, and, and I'm very much hoping to use the podcast I'm doing as the basis to really kick me into working hard on, on part two. I, I, I hope it'll be finished, maybe if not the end of the year, quite soon. Is the next uh, one going to be called Oh, What a Show? Well, funnily enough, that's one of the titles I thought. I thought that might be the obvious title to choose. And then if people missed the first part, which most of Americans did, because it was never released in America for some reason, then it it, it would make sense they could go back and get the first one. (laughs) I have been a fan of Avita and Jesus Christ Superstar since the day that I heard those, and especially the first time that I saw Avita. I have always been curious as far as the history of it after it started playing the West End, basically where your autobiography ended up until 
it coming out uh, theatrically. Can you give me a little bit of a, of a history there, especially when it moved to Broadway and what what that was like for you? Well, Broadway was interesting. Firstly, we'd had such a big hit in, in London that we um, didn't really contemplate any major changes to the work, if any at all. It was just a question, I mean, the set, the staging, the direction, everything was going to be the same. From that point of view, it wasn't quite as exciting because we'd, we'd done it once. But obviously it was with, with a new company. Originally, Hal Prince had implied that Elaine and David Essex would come over to Broadway, but that didn't work out because the rules were very, very strict there. Um, in those days, it was almost impossible to get people to play, Americans to play in London or vice versa. It was just, you know, the unions or whatever. I can't remember, but it was, it was a bit of a stupid rule which denied people in either place seeing stars from the other place, if you see what I mean. So that was the only... As far as I can recall, it was a fairly smooth procedure because we knew we had a show that was good. We got pretty terrible reviews, but that didn't seem to matter. You know, we won all the Tonys in the end. So it was, in a way, it was a much bigger hit on Broadway, well, definitely, than, than, than Superstar had been. And, and it then went on to go around the world in basically the same production, again, unlike Superstar. What were the complaints about the production? Well, I think the complaints were just, they, it, was, it was really, they, they, they thought, you know, it was political. We are glamorizing this horrible woman, this fascist. These, it's a sort of typical New York Times attitude, which they got even worse in recent years. They assume that if you tell a story about Ava Perron, who in many respects was, was not a very nice person, you could argue. On the other hand, there's a case for the other side. And we were trying to just say this, what an interesting person she was. And 99% of the public agreed with us. But the type of person in those days who was a theatre critic felt that we were therefore promoting fascism and making her glamorous. And I tried to point out that the story, the whole point of the story, in a way, is that she was glamorous. If she hadn't been glamorous, there wouldn't have been a story. The criticism, I think, was really aimed at the idea of doing it in the first place rather than any specific criticism of the words or the music, although, of course, it was quite easy to weigh in and quote a couple of lines out of context and um, this, that and the other. But the public seemed to enjoy it from the word go in New York, and it was a big hit. Hal Prince came out pretty well, but of course, he was the local boy and deservedly so. So there was an element of anti-Brits who they think we are. <laughs> but I'm not bitter. How soon after you opened in, in the West End were movie rights discussed? I would think fairly soon. I mean, they were discussed pretty early on, but there were so many discussions about different possibilities, different directors. Adam Parker was one of the very early ones, and we got a little way down the road with um, Ken Russell. It was all a bit sort of confused to begin with, and we kept nearly doing a deal, but in the end, I think the first deal was done with EMI, an actual rights deal, but they failed to deliver, and I think the deal's done with other people. I mean, it was quite funny because we got paid for giving company A or company B the rights to do the film. And then when they didn't do the film, we were able to sell the rights again to somebody else. And we had about three or four, as I'm aware, two or three or three or four goes at uh, selling the rights and nobody made the film. And then eventually David Land, our manager said, boys, I've got terrible news. The film's going to be made. We can't go on selling nothing. We can't go on selling nothing anymore. <laughs> I thought it would be great if the film did get made, but I wasn't too concerned. It, I didn't lose any sleep over it. And I was you know, very pleased when it eventually did get done and Alan Parker back in the frame. What was that like working with Ken Russell and how close did you get to it actually happening with him? Well, it got as far as I went up to stay with him. I think it was in the Lake District, which is way up in the north of England. We were rewriting some of the scripts. 
I, I didn't really enjoy that. I thought, oh, I'd really rather not rewrite it. And, you know, he had some interesting ideas, but it, in the end, it all fell through. It, it didn't really get incredibly far. I don't think we even got as far as screen testing anybody. I really can't remember, but it was definitely something that didn't get too far down the track. But, you know, he was a big talented guy and um, maybe he would have done a good job. But and I, I, I'll, I will never really know why producers, you know, fall out with directors or whatever, if they did. And, you know, things, most things planned don't happen. If you assume that, you won't be too disappointed. I've always been fascinated by Oliver Stone wanting to be a director of Avita. How was that relationship, or did you even meet him? Yeah, yeah, I met Oliver Stone probably more than any other potential director. And in the end, he got a credit for the screenplay. I'm not quite sure how, but he, he ended up with a credit in the film. He was fine. He was an interesting character. There's no doubt about that. And he'd done some wonderful movies. He was quite a hard-hitting, outspoken guy. And I don't think he really got on that well with Robert Stigwood. But in the end, that one fell through as well. And I can't remember, it sounds dark, but I can't remember who, who he was considering for casting. I know there were a lot of possibilities in the air floated, you know, everyone from, you know, um, Michelle Pfeiffer to Meryl Streep to Streisand, <laughs> you know, but none of them really materialized, obviously, until we got Madonna, who was, I think, by far the best choice. Well, she was probably, might have been a tiny bit young to do it when Oliver Stone was, was at the helm. But um, I was very glad she got it. I mean, I know she was, you know, desperate to do it. You know, I think she did a very good job. I mean, I think there were, you know, some, it was a pity she didn't go on to make a few more blockbusters. But uh, she did very well in the film. I thought she was, I mean, people kept saying, you've got to have a real actress. Well, A, Madonna can act. But, but I don't think you want an actress, first and foremost, somebody who thinks acting is the most important thing. You want somebody who can sell a song. And that's what Madonna was absolutely brilliant at. It's a musical with virtually no dialogue. And I thought you couldn't have anybody better than Madonna who looks perfect. She's, you know, very big name. She can sing. And, you know, that, it, it just fitted. I mean, you know, you, there's always a danger of people overacting. How was it revisiting Evita all those years later and adding in the You Must Love Me song? Well, that was interesting because I, we, by mistake, wrote rather a good song. We, we, we obviously wrote it to, because if you want to get an Oscar nomination you, with, with the song, you've got to have a new song. You can't, don't cry for me, Argentina could not qualify for, for an Oscar, as I'm sure you know. And we, there's always that little bit in the film towards the end where maybe it needed one more strong musical moment. I mean, I'm not saying the music wasn't strong there, but, but there wasn't a sort of new song that really hit home in the last 15 minutes or so until The Lament, which is one of my favorites, but that's at the very end. And there's a few reprises of, of, of some of the hits. But um, so it actually was quite a nice thing to do. And uh, it gave us a chance to put over a little extra aspect of, of Ava's character. And on the whole, quite sympathetically, I think, because she was dying. And amazingly, the song we wrote was rather good. It won the Oscar, which I was surprised at because I... I thought the film was not incredibly well received. It came out just before Christmas and it, just in time for the Oscars. And it, it was quite well received, but not phenomenally. And I think there was a, probably a bit of an anti-Madonna feeling in the um, community, if there is such a thing. The Academy voters who are not, you know, they're half of them who the others are, so you hardly call them a community. But I think there was a definite lack of enthusiasm for Madonna. But no one had seen the film because it only came out just before Christmas. By the time the voting came, people felt rather guilty, I think, that, 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 that they hadn't sort of voted for Madonna first time round because she didn't get nominated. 
well, as our song did, that our song wasn't up against a whole slew of brilliant songs. It was up against some good songs, but um, I was not surprised we got a nomination. When, when, when the voters came for the final round of voting, they thought, oh, Madonna's actually done rather a good job, much better than we thought. And I think they couldn't now vote for the film because the film had not been nominated. And so that kind of helped us because I think we got a lot of people who wanted to vote for the film but couldn't voting for the song, which is the, almost the only area they could now vote in. But it was a good song. I think it deserved to win, he said arrogantly. It fitted into the plot. I mean, it wasn't just, it wasn't just stuck in. I mean, it was stuck in in one sense, but it wasn't stuck in to the extent that it was, let's give her a song, it doesn't matter what it's called, just give her a new song. Um, and it wasn't just something stuck over the end credits. It was a proper addition to the score. And it was so popular and so successful, it now is in virtually every stage show version. It must be strange for you seeing the differences in those in, as the time has gone on and also seeing productions in languages that you don't even speak. I've seen it in lots of different languages, which I, I don't mind because it's quite nice because if, if, if it's in Croatian or Czech or something, or even Spanish, which I don't really speak um, at all, I mean, I can understand a bit of Spanish, it's quite nice because I don't have to worry about whether they got the words right and, and I can relax and listen to the music, which is pretty good. And often, if I'm watching it in English, it, it's difficult to completely relax and concentrate on it and, and pretend you're just a punter from, the, you know, from some other business um, watching it, which is the best way to watch it. I found that seeing it in Portuguese, for example, in Sao Paulo, was, was great because I just thought, well, this is a good tune. I don't, I don't know what the hell they're singing about, or at least I don't know what the words literally mean, but it's a great tune. So that was fine. I don't mind. I mean, I'm grateful for anybody doing it. There are a few lyrics that are in Spanish in Evita, and who helped you out with that? I wrote them myself because I did have a bit of a bit of a glimmering of of, 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 of Spanish. But um, I had a, I think a friend of mine with a called Jacqueline Kennedy, not the Jackie Kennedy. Well, she is the Jackie Kennedy, but this is another Jackie Kennedy. You see what I mean? But my my Jackie Kennedy was a translator in the European Union, and she spoke lots of languages. And I think I wrote the few lines that were in Spanish which were fairly basic, you know, and, and, and um, you know, and all that. And she checked it out. And I think basically I got it right, but um, I wouldn't ever try and write the whole show in Spanish. When it, the show finally came out, uh, what were the reactions from Argentine people? Or was it as varied as, you know, you're talking about how some people see her as a saint, some people see her as the devil. Was it as varied as that? Well, the show came out first, obviously, as you know, and, I mean, Superstar had caused trouble in Argentina, so we weren't going to rush down there to to think about Eva Peron. But I think everybody in Argentina wanted to hear it. But one heard stories about people having it confiscated from them when, when they when they flew in, you know, from London to Buenos Aires, and the, and the and the regime in Argentina at the time was was extremely murky and unpleasant. Um, to begin with, I don't think anybody was really allowed to have an opinion about it because that would have implied that they'd heard it or, or seen it or bought it. Again, as you know, by the time the film came around, we even got permission to film it in Argentina. And I think whatever people thought of Eva Peron, and it's true that you know, half the people think she's wonderful, half the other people think she's terrible, the majority were quite pleased that, that the show had, had brought her story to you know, a, a, a bigger audience. Because in England, certainly, and I don't know so much about America, but to a great extent, I would have said the same thing. In England, you know, in 1976-7, when we, when we wrote the piece, um, very few people knew who Eva Peron was. 
I mean, literally. So we were starting from scratch. And I think that was also true in, in to a certain extent in America, not in Latin America or obviously Spain and Argentina itself, obviously. But um, I don't think she was anything like as well known then as she is now, thanks to the show. Yeah, it seems like every book about Eva Perón that I pick up now has to address the musical. Yes, the, the, the initial ones didn't. The initial books all came out quite funny. The load of books came out. I mean, I, I find it very hard to find anything about Evita, and I didn't even get hold of Mary Main's book. But I didn't need too much. I only really wanted the facts. All the books that came out immediately just didn't mention it, or else said this is a very, you know, a, a, a unimpressive, an unimpressive musical was written, you know, blah, 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 in dismissing one line. In a funny way, I feel the musical is almost the best way to discuss Ava Perón because she was an over-the-top, glamorous, wannabe star. And I think she would have loved the show. Maybe she might have disagreed with some of the comments, but I think that the fact that she was immortalized in a big musical, which was a hit around the world, I think would have been right up her alley. You might be the first, uh, what they call it, EGOT that I've spoken to, and I believe you're definitely the first knight that I've spoken to. Good heavens, you've led a very sheltered life. <laughs> what was that like getting getting the knighthood? Well, that was a long time ago now, 1994, I think it was. It was nice. It was a nice honor, you know. You, 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 you. I mean, sometimes part of me thinks those sort of honors are a bit stupid, but there again, one's quite happy, or most people are quite happy to accept Oscars and Grammys or whatever other awards floating around in the business. And, and in a way, they're only somebody's opinion. I mean, it doesn't mean to say that if you win an Oscar for something, you're the best. It means that you've done something that's okay. And a ditto with a knighthood. It just means that perhaps enough people in the establishment think, think okay, so you shouldn't get carried away with it. But it's, it's quite a nice thing to have. I didn't, didn't think I would. I mean, I, I thought about it briefly. I said, do I really want this? But on the whole, I think I'm quite pleased. My mum was very pleased. And it's, it's quite a nice thing to have. But I, I try not to sort of use it too much. But other people use it quite happily, you know, often more than me. But often, you know, find some people say, oh, I turned down a night or I turned something down. You think, well, but you wouldn't turn down an Oscar or you wouldn't turn down a Tony or you wouldn't turn down a gold medal at the Olympics. So why do you turn down something your country gives you? So I'm happy with that. You worked with Andrew Lloyd Webber for those first three big musicals that you did. When you moved to work with, say, a um, uh, Stephen Oliver or uh, Benny and Bjorn from ABBA, what was that work relationship like, and did you do the same things as far as you know, music first, lyrics second, or did you do lyrics first, music second with that, or just kind of at the same time? With Stephen Oliver and the ABBA boys, it was the same as with Andrew, basically. I would do the plot, the plot outline, the composer would write music that fitted the storyline that they had, and then I would put words onto the tune, or whatever it was. And of course, at any point, some things might get switched or changed. But basically, they were exactly the same as working with Andrew Plot, music, lyrics. But, you know, with, with often friendly discussions about different aspects of it en route. But that was the way it worked. The only person who I worked with extensively who liked, liked, liked to do it the other way around with lyrics first was Elton. And, um, but still, the plot had to come first. So when we did The Lion King, the first thing that everybody worked on at Disney was getting the storyline. And then we would, I would then write the lyrics. That actually was useful i think having it that way around for the film because i could then write the lyrics and then that would get changed a lot because in a movie sometimes a character is completely written out of it or whatever and um there were many changes in the storyline before i felt confident enough to send a lyric to elton i didn't want him writing too many tunes for lyrics that were going to get the boot not necessarily that they were bad 
but because the storyline didn't didn't fit anymore. I really appreciated reading your autobiography and reading about when you would have a tune already and just kind of make it work for something new, like those songs that were out there already that you had done that you're like, okay, let's pick this up and use it in a Vita. That was very clever of you to do. I mean, it was Andrew, really. I mean, if I were a composer and and I'd had a tune which didn't work in one scenario, I'd happily put it into another one. You can't do that with words Um, or hardly ever. I mean, if I tried to put the lyrics of, I mean, say, say um, Evita had been a total flock, Andrew, understandably, would have used the tune and probably in his next show. It's a great tune. I could not use the lyrics of Don't Cry from the Argentina in The Lion King without quite a substantial change of storyline. It was really a great privilege composers have that a lot of their stuff is transferable. They were denied as they would say, nonsense, I wrote this, um, and it can only fit in this scene, but that's, that's manifestly not true. I mean, sometimes there is a tune that might not work in a certain cut type of musical, but by and large, a good tune, if it's good, can be made to fit almost any scene with different arrangements and different, different orchestrations. Can you still sing How Much Is That Dog in the Window backwards? Probably. Well, the chorus I could do, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's a minor, a minor achievement, but probably almost unique. Can you tell me a little bit more about what it was like doing uh, chess with the Apple Boys? Well, it was it was great. I mean, they 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 were really, well, they are wonderful composers. And I I, I went to Sweden a lot and did a lot of the work in in Stockholm, which I enjoyed. Um, it was nice to work in a different country. Um, and I it was it was you know complex at times because you know it was quite a, com- a complicated story. But they were so good in the studio, in the recording studio. They just knew how to work it and. Um, the ABBA records are so beautifully made and these ones were equally beautifully made. And, um, yeah, I mean, the chess ones and it's it a great pleasure. And the album did very well. And, and some of the singles, the, sh- the show did fine in London, although it was a little bit, a little bit of a mess in places, but it was a disaster on Broadway, but it's kept going. I mean, the, the, the show is continually being rethought and redone. And it's like a bit of a cult really. I think if it had been a more successful first time on Broadway, then I think it wouldn't be, quite as worshipped as it is in some quarters. People like the score a lot. I think it's a good score. One Night in Bangkok, I remember being a huge hit when I was younger. Yes, it was a, it was a big hit in America in particular. And, uh, but, but it was played on the radio. And, and I mean, we quite often heard the radio, the disc jockey, saying, well, it's a great record, but I have no idea what it's about. You know? <laughs> and a lot of people didn't realize it was from the show Chess, which probably was a bit of a marketing failure on our part or on the record company's part. But the album did okay. The album did, did quite well in America. It was a big hit over here. And, and One Night in Bangkok, and I know him so well, and the anthem have been great successes around the world. That was one thing I was really impressed is just how much you would get involved in the marketing and design and those things. And especially when you would do the record albums before you would even think about the, the show, you know, or, or just before the staging ever began. Well, we were kind of forced into it with Superstar. We, we, we wanted to do it on stage. Um, it was written initially. Our idea was to do something for the stage. Um, but nobody wanted to know. And we were kind of forced back onto doing it as a record because we, we were able to get a record deal. And that was, I think, the making of the piece. Because I think if it had been done on, in, a, in, a, in an out-of-town out of theater, you know, with a, with a small-ish orchestra, which couldn't in those days incorporate rock instruments into it, I, I, I don't think the piece would have had a hope. But 
having had a huge success with the album, which was a very contemporary rock album of its time in 1970, 1970, we, we recorded it. I think if, 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 if that, that was what made the piece so successful, that it was a new way of, of presenting a score. And it was an exciting score because we could make it rock and it could be, um, very dynamic and you could, didn't have to worry about scenery and getting 10,000 Roman soldiers on or whatever. But, because that worked so well, when we came to Avita, well, we probably could have got it staged straight away because we had a bit of a bit of a name by then. We thought, no, well, let, let, let's make the record first and get it right. A lot of people thought Avita was a terrible idea; it wouldn't work. But we thought, well, if we do an album, I think we can prove that it's a good story and it can work, and and it, and it worked again. Have you ever done that for anything else that you've worked on? Well, we did it with Chess. Really, Chess had an album out first, and 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 that that did pretty well in in Europe in particular. And as you say, One Night in Bangkok did well in America and the album did okay. But I haven't done it really since. It's, the times have moved on. It's like, you know, people, people don't really buy albums in that sort of way anymore, I don't think. I mean, they might buy an album. Well, I mean, they probably stream it anyway. But so much music is so available effortlessly that it's very hard to make an impact with a record on its own these days. But I may be wrong. I mean, I, I, I think if I were doing another show, I'd probably tend to go straight to show. How did you get involved in podcasting? I just thought I'll do a podcast. I was down in lockdown, lockdown in um, Cornwall, in my house in Cornwall, which is far southwest of England. And I thought I'll do a podcast. One or two of my friends were doing it, and I thought it's quite interesting. And I investigated it, and it didn't seem to be very difficult to do. So I gave it a go. And I, I, funny enough, I'm just finishing off number twelve, which goes out on Monday. And I, I, it, it, it's going onto, onto an American platform soon, so it, it might reach a bigger audience. And I thought people might be interested, and you know, it's quite a good way of getting my retaliation in first, that sort of thing. Wait till you get the Lion King second movie podcast. That'll be interesting. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> <laughs> Should I call you Sir Tim or Mr. Rice? Oh, just Tim. I'm a, I'm a man of the common people. I could speak to you all day, but I don't want to take up too much of your time. You, you, I told you 20 minutes, you've given me 30, but I can't tell you how much I appreciate this. Well, thank you very much. You're very kind. I mean, if you, if, 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 it's, if, if when you, edit it up and all that and feel there's something missing, let me know. Vår Evita hund expanien med sig Vi har självklart succé var en hon drar sin färd Som en ny slags Madonna från en bättre värld Fyllde arenor 45 000 platser Men är man snyggare än General Franco är det lätt Grepp om Spanien verkar säkert Så du har förvärvat en fändersång Verkar så säker på allt som du Rent politiskt Vad som har visat sig viktigt Din fru är ett oslagbart trumfkort All right, we are back, and we are talking about Avida, and now we can finally, fucking finally, talk about the movie. What works, what doesn't. I gotta say, right off the bat, those cheap, cheap, cheap opening credits just do not work for me. <laughs> Sorry to pick on the credits. I'm gonna be, pick, be picking out a lot of this movie, but the opening credits, for fuck's sake, come on, spend a little bit more money. 
felt very like silent movie or something. I don't know what's yeah. going on. I did not realize you were going to be like interviewing Tim Rice, so I feel bad about many of the things I am about to say about this movie. I'm sure he has heard worse. I uh, put in a link in the, the outline to Rex Reed's uh, review of Evita um, back when Ricky Martin was uh, picking up the role. And of course, yeah, Rex Reed's the biggest bitch around. And he, he just can nothing be done once and for all to get rid of Evita. Here it is again, worse than ever, and revive for Broadway for no logical reason except to cash in on Ricky Martin's fame as a pop star, just as the 96 movie cashed in on, without much success, Madonna's celebrity as a prehistoric Lady Gaga. <laughs> and that's the, op- the opening paragraph, guys. That guy. And let, let me say, when I tried to check out Evita the first time, I listened to the cast soundtrack, and I picked the wrong one. I picked that revival. It's not great. It's not. But still, imagine being Rex Reed for a living. Ugh. I will say that I have gone back and forth on this movie. The first time I saw it, when it came out theatrically, I fucking hated this movie. The second time I watched it, which was like a few months ago, getting ready to talk to Tim Rice, I was like, oh, okay, I misjudged this movie. It's actually all right. Then I watched it again two nights ago. I think I'm back to hating it. Since I've seen the Evita the first time, I have now seen the the live John Legend version of Jesus Christ Superstar they put on NBC. I have seen uh, Hamilton on Disney Plus, which has informed my take on this quite a bit. And I have seen, uh, tragically, Tom Hooper's Cats. And I feel like just fundamentally, Andrew Lloyd Webber is very just, it resists adapting to film. He resists most of his stuff. I think you could do a good version of Phantom. They haven't done one. He didn't like the Joel Schumacher version? That's a separate story. Fundamentally, Andrew Lloyd Webber musicals are concerts. They're not even musicals. They are concerts. They are live performances of songs in a row. Not really a story exactly or a thing with characters. So he adapted School of Rock, right? Yes. I have not seen School of Rock, although I have a friend. I had a friend who worked on School of Rock as a, on the costumes, but no, I've not seen School of Rock. To me, that made sense. Like, that made sense. Okay, he's going to put us into like a bit of a jukebox feel, a jukebox musical, because that's what, from the jump, that's what he's done well. That's what Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat is, is each song is a different genre. One is country, one is rock and roll, one is calypso, one is this. And so that's what he does well, is he, and then he just forces them all together. There's no best in sway. The, the, the number one word, Mike, as you were describing, you like, dislike, sorry, dislike, liked, and then disliked again. Is the number one word that I got, and the reason I had to turn it off a couple of times, it took me about five hours to watch it yesterday, to watch it again. The number one word for me is assault. It's like a constant assault on your senses. Mm. And I think some people who don't really cotton to musicals kind of think that about musicals anyway, is that they're just kind of constantly being barked at. But there's just no, there's no tie. And that's what I, I actually enjoy more about musicals that had, that where someone start singing because they just can't talk anymore, right? Uh-huh. Where, where it comes out of the spoken word into something that, like, feels like it's got to be heightened. And this just feels like a constant assault on all the senses, not just Android Weber's music or Tim Wright. You know, like, it just felt like it's constantly a barrage of, like, did 
did they ever just go to the country and have a nice day? And they have a picnic? <laughs> did anybody <laughs> to me? So I just feel like this constant like, ah, in your face, right? So I, I have to be honest, my take on it is kind of the opposite in that I think if you're going to make this into a movie, it's got to be a lot more. And I feel like Alan Parker m- diminished it, basically. It's a very literal translation. And I just don't think there's any way that can really work. Well, I think like, I think you're onto something because didn't Madonna come in in 86 and say, I want rights to rewrite this thing? So <laughs> I'm sure there was uh, a couple of opposing magnets there between <laughs> Alan Parker. And because from the beginning, that flashback in the movie theater... 90% of this is Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice, right? This is whether Alan Parker wanted it to happen or not. Like, except for another suitcase, another hall, it's pretty much in order, correct? Yes and no. There are, are some changes, like one chorus of The Art of the Possible, because they use The Ladies Got Potential, they went back to that. So it was interesting that they would go back to the White Album, the concept album, time and time again then they would uh, omit other things or change other things. And the biggest thing for me was that they really toned down the way, and I don't know why this is, they would tone down the way that Ava Perone hated the aristocracy to the point where they actually omitted the line, you know, I must outshine my enemy, the aristocracy. I won't disappoint them, them being the Descamisados. So they, she says, I won't, uh, I must outshine my enemy. I won't disappoint them. And it's like, you should say who your enemy is. You should say the aristocracy. You want to be better than the aristocracy. She hates the upper class. She hates the middle class. And when she gets to that screw the middle classes thing, it is not nearly as powerful as like Lapone would do. I mean, nothing is as powerful as Patty Lapone would, would do. I'm sorry to say. of Buenos Aires I welcome the chance to shine in this city Screw the middle classes I will never accept them My father's other family were middle class And we were kept out of sight Hidden from view at his funeral They tone it down so much It just feels so bland a lot of times which makes Ava feel like more of a victim here than she mm. is a powerful foe to the, uh, the aristocracy. Right. Or a shrew. Talking to you guys now, I realize this may come out better on stage, but I watch Evita, the movie, and I feel like this movie doesn't really have a very strong take on who Ava Perone was. It was just like she was a person that existed, but like, what are you trying to say about her exactly? And I didn't really get any sense out of that. That's one of the things I like about the musical a lot is that we vacillate between is she in charge of her own destiny, which I think we can all agree that she kind of was, that she maneuvered through the world in order to get to where she wanted to be. But is she a horrible person for doing that or is she just playing the game in order to get to that place? And that was the thing that I liked about the musical is that you felt like you could have it both ways. You felt like you could look at her and be like, wow, she was a real bitch at the same time. Wow. Maybe she did some good things, 
but did she do them in the right way? Like the whole thing of like her giving to the charities and stuff. Okay, that's great. Taking away the upper classes houses and giving them to the lower classes. Wow. Okay. That's something, but maybe they deserved it. I don't know. So it's like you get to hold these questions in your head, but in the movie version, I don't feel like I'm even being asked to ask questions. I feel like I'm just being shown this stuff and I'm like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you a hundred percent. Just not enough, you know, and maybe the musical is guilty of this too, but not enough character development. That's why mm-hmm. I'm saying the barrage for me, the assault for me was like, did she really love Juan Peron? Was there a love affair there? Did they really care for one another? Or was she, again, manipulating the situation for power? Was she just right. an exorcist out for power? Um, I would love to have seen a little bit more of that. Yeah, if, you, if you're saying that the, the musical has, like, two sharp opposing takes and it's trying to, you know, have it both ways, feels like the movie is trying to have it neither way. So in the musical, you get... Uh, at least one time where you have Ava and, and Juan in bed together. And it's like, okay. And that's the dice rolling part and her like, Hey, don't give up now, blah, blah, blah. And she's really singing for herself, though she's singing for him this way of when she says wheel and then changes it to you'll be handed power on a plate of one of my favorite bits. So you've got that in the musical, but in the movie, you have him going over to her door and looking at the doorknob and never going in. And I'm just like, okay, is this a loveless relationship? This seems weird. And they yeah. didn't follow up on it. I actually missed I, – I've seen this twice now, and I missed that scene both times. If you look down for five seconds, you're going to miss it. It's, doesn't yeah. she also on the other side of the door see the door or hear him at the door, and then he I walks think so. away? So you're like, okay, what is their relationship? I'm left with it as loveless after that little moment. That little verbal gaffe of her saying, we'll changing it to you'll, it's a laugh line. And so many of the laugh lines have been cut from this movie as well. Things that are inherently funny, things like Che saying, you know, you'll never be remembered for your voice to Magaldi, the tango singer. And then when Magaldi sings his next line in the musical, it is horrible. He's got a, like, he's got a good voice, but he also plays it up. He's camp. The city can be paradise for those who have the cash, the class, and the connections, what you need to make a splash. And you're just like, holy shit, this guy's like not good. Like, there's a reason why he's playing in Hunin and he's not in Buenos Aires. He's just like, the audience here is sitting on their hands, you know? And I'm just like, yeah, no. You know, when one wants like face the facts, they don't like your act. It's like, yeah, no, he's not that good. But she sees him as a vehicle to get out. And I'm laughing at Magaldi. And in this, I'm just like, well, I'm not laughing at Magaldi. And oh, he's got a family. I should be sad. It doesn't feel like it's earned. I had no sense of this guy supposed to be a camp figure in any way. This is really a big surprise to me. Mind blown. Like you just described an obvious difference between a stage play and a film. I mean, you guys are cinephiles. I'm not. But I mean, does that often happen that someone takes out the laugh space? And that, that we keep this barrage, as I'm calling it, or this through composed piece is don't stop to laugh because we got to keep the music. You know, it's, I think it's interesting to, from from my uh, Luddite perspective. I've, I've seen Chicago on stage and there are some jokes on there that, you know, they had. You can tell they had to cut because that wouldn't really play in a, in a, on a screen. 
But, like, Chicago, the movie, is still very funny. And Abita, the movie, is not funny at all. No. And there's weird lines that they will change, like, and I don't know when they change them. Like, if they, again, I'm not that familiar with the concept album versus the, the Pwn recording. So things like, and I, I just watched a, a taped version of Avita, and I, it might have been the 2010 performance. I'm not sure. I didn't recognize any of the performers. I did notice that the line I'm used to, which is who could ever get kicks in the back of the sticks, that's there. And that's on the Lapone album. But then I watch the movie and it's who could ever be fond of the back of beyond. And again, talking about that whole, I'm used to this. I'm not used to that. As soon as she says, who could ever be fond of the back of beyond? I'm just like, nope, that's wrong. That's it. And I just want to check out of the whole fucking movie. And it's just like, am I being way oversensitive? I don't think so because it's just like, I can't say, like, you have to be 100% on book. You always have to do this. It's like, it's their movie. They can do what they want. But then there are stupid little changes like that where I'm just like, why did you change that? Why is that there? And now I have to pull myself back into the movie. That changes for the worse. That I think that's kind of emblematic of what this movie's trying to do. It's very, I don't know, Oscar Beatty, I guess. I, that, that's the word I'm going for, Oscar Beatty. Very middle brow, very... Like, if you're going to cast Madonna, Madonna, the the scandal-ridden icon of our time, like, you've got to play that up. I'd, this is... Vi- wow. I, I think you're talking me into liking this movie less and less, and I didn't come in here with a very high opinion. I think it comes back to capitalism, though. I mean, you talk about the history of this, and when we do this deep dive into it, of, you know, whether it was a concept album, then it went to, to Broadway. Well, in the late 70s, early 80s, Broadway was great for performers and musicians to, to hone their craft and their skills, but movies is what made money. Right Now we have Hamilton. Now we have, you know, big million dollar things happening on Broadway that then become film or go to Netflix or Disney Plus, as Todd said. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's just a different, it was a different time, you know, and I think that we see the switch, right, from the 80s into 96 when films were, I think there's like definitely a fight happening here between the filmmaker and the, the, um, the composers. It feels like Madonna is fighting with the material. This doesn't feel like it's fighting with the material girl. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I know she got a lot of vocal training to get into this and to, to do this role. And there are times where, yes, they will tone things down. They'll bring it down quite a bit. Pitch down. Yeah, pitch it down. Ellen Page, Patty Lapone, their octave range was just huge. And when we get into things like I've seen videos where they'll talk about, um, I think it's Buenos Aires, the song, when you get to that line star quality and how low it goes, Madonna luckily can get low enough to, to say star quality and get down there. But there are some singers, like uh, some performances I've been to, um, one that was down, I think, at the Masonic Temple here in Detroit. And when you get to that line, the singer could not sing it as far as my concept goes. So instead, you would get down there and she would go, star quality. And I'm like, oh, no, that's not how the song goes. I mean, Madonna got there, but that doesn't mean she that doesn't necessarily mean it worked. Well, and she couldn't go high. She couldn't do the, you know, the screw the middle classes stuff was way toned down. And just also her venom was toned down. Like, you know, Ava hated the middle classes because they kept her away from her father's funeral. And we really play on that father's funeral thing, something that is 
talked about in the musical, but not seen. So the filmmakers did the right thing. They showed more than they could, you know, talk about. This is not a musical. This is a movie. So we're going to show some things that we couldn't, you know, show on stage. We're not going to have, we're not going to hire a little girl to pretend to try to get into this funeral, yada, yada. We'll go to that. But it felt like the venom of, I hate the middle classes because it kept me out of my father's funeral. You know, like that whole, my father's other family was middle class, you know, like that whole thing. No, we're just going to play that down quite a bit. Alan Parker directed The Wall. I feel like the wall approach is what this this movie kind of needed because, like I said, Madonna, you're, you ent- cast her entirely for her star power, her celebrity, her I- iconicness. It does not really come across. This is a movie about a person, not an icon, is what I feel like. And I feel like the only movie she was ever in that really captured that star quality was Dick Tracy, the comic book movie, because she's not like a, she's she's no Oscar winner. Let let's say like so, if you're gonna cast her, you gotta play her up and this movie does not play her up big film convention right the giant audience scenes oh yeah period costumes and wanted really really badly to be an epic right it wanted you know and it kept repeating like here's all this here's all the butchers right now all the butchers are sad here's all the butchers now they're all really happy here's all the butchers now they're protesting so like went back to those scenes again and again and again to say look at all these people so the I don't know. In, in football, they call the uh, the audience of 100,000 people the 12th man of the 11 players. Mm-hmm. It felt like the you know the middle class was somehow that 12th cast member, but you know was Che their voice? You know, I guess, but mm-hmm. they weren't always upset with Ava. They were shouting her praises at the. The movie feels very small, despite they try and cram as many extras, make this like a Cecil B. DeMille kind of thing, but it never feels like that. It never does. It feels like a very small movie. Could have done a little more Busby Berkeley and Moulin Rouge spinning around of the scene. A Moulin Rouge uh, take, I think, would be absolutely correct for this material. Like I said, that's not what it turned out to be. The crazy thing about the actual staging of the musical is just how bare it is. You know, I talked about the whole scene with her and all the different lovers. And that is literally almost a bare stage with a door. And then you've got her showing people in and out of the door. And you've got Che there also grabbing people's things and throwing them out. And then you start to build a chorus over to the side of all the men that she has kicked out, that she has, has trod upon to get to that next level. So you have them like with the, uh, you know, Argentine men are the, it's called the sexual shots, like them over to the side doing this. And then we've got a bed over here and we've got the door and that's it. You know, so you've got this very, very minimal stage thing as opposed to what, like six or seven different locations they go to for the film, but yet the film feels smaller than the stage, even though it's basically a bed and a door. You know, Hamilton is also pretty bare from what I saw on Disney+. Plus. Comparing it to that, I feel like going back to uh, what we were saying about Che, Aaron Burr is our narrator, but he's also his own character. And Judas is our narrator, but he's also his own character. And Che Guevara, just by being Che Guevara, would be his own character. But Che, as played by Antonio Banderas, is not. He'd be his own character. But you get character development of, of Aaron Burr. You get right. character development with with songs that are not just rapid-fire, in-your-face, machine-gun style, right? You know, you get Wait For It. You get these great songs from Hamilton that develop. You know, And that's what I love about the Bear staging is because you, you're not – it's not about this flashy, giant, epic feel. It's 
you hone in on what this person has to say, what their what's their happiness, what's their sadness, and you and you begin to care for the character. And I feel like that's what this film lacks entirely about Evita. Why do we care about her? What's her development? Mm-hmm. What what do we love about her as a child? What do we feel for her as a child? It just feels like there's not enough exposition at all. Because Che is now no longer a real character, but like an omniscient voice of some kind, Che's opinion of Ava becomes the movie's opinion of Ava. What Che says is, you know, she, he seems to loathe like how the, the worshipful celebrity cult that she has. But he's also not really going out to say he's like she was a terrible person. She was a monster. She, he also doesn't really seem to have much of a take on Ava. Just that, you know, y'all need to tone it back some and she was kind of a slut. But like that's it's not really a strong take on her politics or opinions. And let me say this. Having now seen Hamilton, I understand the politics informing every scene in that thing. I have no idea what Peronism is after watching this. I have not a clue. And I've tried to educate myself on my own time, but it seems like kind of pointless because it has nothing to do with this movie. It's missing certain things, too. Like, it's a little heavy-handed, but it's okay. It's Che in the musical saying, like, what's new, Argentina? Here, let me tell you what's new. And he talks about how the gold reserves, you know, Argentina, once the most wealthy country in South America, were now broke. You know, we're known for our Argentine beef. Basically, there's no more cows left, you know, so that... To go back to your point, uh, Paul, the butchers are sad. Why are the butchers sad? We're not going to tell you why the butchers are sad. The butchers are just sad. We're not going to talk about the beef. You know, we're not going to talk about how, like, there are some headlines here and there that you might read, like, unemployment soars. Okay, cool. But you really need to show that things are going to shit underneath Perone. That's more exposition about the the state of the country for me than there was about Ava Duarte. Like, I've learned more about her life and why what her upbringing was and the trials and tribulations of her reading the first paragraph of Wikipedia than I did in this movie. <laughs> At all. There are two characters that are missing in the movie, which are some of the bodyguards. So, like, you kind of get them in one point when Che's complaining about something and they come along and they say good night and thank you. And that's it. But in the, the musical, they're there several times. There are... Moments where Juan is complaining about how tiresome it is to have to get votes in an election. And then these bodyguards are like, we have ways of making you vote for us, or at least of making you abstain. And they grab, you know, Che and take him off. There were several times where people grab Che and take him off the stage. And that's one of them. And you don't get that here. They make her out to be like a a person of the people. And you have Che backbiting the entire time. Well, it's like, well, she wasn't really that much of you know uh, as much as she claimed but you you have no idea of like what is Juan Perón a dictator or anything like that like she goes to Italy they like they call her a fascist but like is he a fascist is she a fascist I don't know not at least at least not from watching this movie she's just sad because they threw tomatoes at her car right yeah (laughs) it sounds to me like Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice this is all the things we can do as musicians and then Alan Parker, right? And mm-hmm. Hollywood. This is, these are the amazing things we can do with film. But somewhere along the line, nobody got together to talk about storytelling. From start to finish, tell me a story. What a story? It's like big flashy music moments, big flashy film. Where's the story? Who is Che? Who is this Che? Who is Ava? Who is Juan Perón? The first time I saw this, I was like, okay, 
Jonathan Price, can he sing? I guess he can, but he speaks sings most of his parts. So he doesn't really carry a tune in the movie. I'm not saying that he can't. Maybe the guy's fantastic, but in this movie, he barely sings. But if you he, don't tell me a story, why do I care? You can, right. you can drive up in front of my house with a brand new Ferrari, and I can say, that's a nice car, but I'd rather know like more about the person who bought it and how they made the money make to, to buy it for her. I don't know. Do you know what I mean? There's no story uh-huh. here. Jonathan Price is a is a musical guy. He's a, he's a guy who's been in musicals. He was uh, on Miss Saigon, controversially. They so thought he'd take his take another step into the controversy and do this role. <laughs> Little brown face, yeah. <laughs> Argent Argentinians tend to be pretty pretty light skinned, but that is something that would definitely be eyebrow raising today. That you got away with in '96. That you have a a, a cast full of Anglo's. Well, Madonna's not Anglo; she's Catholic, but. Well, and then Antonio Banderas, that was a smart choice to cast him in that. Though the first time I watched this, I was just like, oh, man, uh, I am not buying him as a singer. Now, when I watch it, I'm like, he might be the best singer in here. He might be better than Madonna. I, I feel like he's not a bad singer, He's, but I'm not sure this is his material. I don't know. The first time watching it, it was like, I, you know, Andrew Lloyd Webber doing School of Rock makes more sense to me because he's got a very Jack Black type of approach to rock. It's kind of silly. Antonio Banderas is not a silly man. Again, this is a problem of the entire movie. It's a little too straight for, you know, this campy-ish material. I will fully admit that there is there is a lot of camp in Evita, and we're missing that from this movie. I mean, even to the idea of the, the Juan Perón that I'm used to is Bob Gunton, who is one of the, the whitest guys you possibly know. Some people would know him immediately as the warden from the Shawshank Redemption. Him with the fake nose and the rolling of the R's and stuff. I love the way that he would roll his R's on these things. Like, But when you act, you take us away from the squalor of the real world. And he rolls his R's three times just in that – or four times, I think it is. <laughs> yeah, It's just like – it's fucking crazy. But it, it works for me. And there are people – I mean, let's be honest. No matter what we do on this episode, there are going to be people that disagree with me. I was reading things like, oh, you know, Bob Gunton was the worst one because, uh, you know, how dare he roll his R's all the time. Did Juan Perón really do that? I'm like, come on, guys. It's a choice. Some people say that Madonna was the absolute perfect choice for this role. Some people say that she was the worst choice for this role. But it's just like, okay, I think there are some goods and bads on both of these things. But it just as a whole, it just doesn't feel like it ever comes together. Well, certainly the Argentinians were not a fan of Madonna's casting. <laughs> the thinking of the great stories that some of our newer playwrights and uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda comes to mind. You know, what if what if he took a shot at uh, writing his own Evita and what would that look like? It'd be very interesting to, to see. Because, uh, you know, again, with all the documentaries I've watched of uh, Ava Duarte, I mean, what porcelain skin and blonde hair. And I mean, would you feel like you had to cast a, a woman of color in that role today? With, with everything, you know, and, I mean, as a white man, I'm I'm probably not the right person to have this conversation. But it, it's very interesting to, to think how that casting should and would go today with Evita as pale, white, and blonde as she was. Does they have to be Beyonce in that role? I don't know. Like the Ricky Martin version they did was with Elena Roger, and that was like stunt casting because she is, in fact, Argentinian. She was not very good in it. 
And like, in fact, when they did like the, when she was at the, when the Evita got like the revival got some Tony awards, uh, the, the performance they did was with Ricky and with, not with Elena. It's rough. It's a really rough performance. That's not a take on how they would cast it today. I'm just saying this can go wrong. I don't think you're ever going to, with the Andrew Lloyd Webber, Tim Rice, I don't think you're ever going to be able to remove camp fully from a production of the ALW uh, Avita. They certainly tried in this movie. <laughs> definitely. They definitely did. There are even times where there were moments when you're watching the stage version of this where you knew for sure that all of the shit that Che Guevara was saying was getting to Ava because even though he's kind of this gadfly, this fly-in-the-wall character, he would piss her off several times. And that also helped when – and this was a, a change uh, going back to the concept album, but not the Broadway version. I love when Che, who's there in the fatigues, and he's got the beard, and he's got the beret and stuff. He puts on – I think the beret is off at this point, but he puts on like the, the fedora with the little press tab in there, and suddenly he's a reporter – and when he asks Ava, like, This has really been your year, Miss Duarte. Tell us where you go from here, Miss Duarte. Which are the roles that you yearn to play? Whom did you sleep, dine with yesterday? And that little catch in there. And then she gives, like, you know, is that the extent of your interest in me? That shows how futile acting can be. Like, that's pretty great. Like, he pisses her off there. He pisses her off a few other times. Like, he will come in and do things. Like, or the oligarchs will all come in as this great group. Uh, the oligarchs in the stage version were just this mass of people dressed up in finery. And they would literally move across the stage and sing their little bits and then move off. And then when Ava would come back, she would always, like, look at them like she was pissed off that they interrupted her. Like, especially, like, in and things like, um, you know, uh, Buenos Aires and things like that. Just what, you know, she's there singing this great song and they come in, interrupt her and she, you know, gets angry and she would get angry at Che. And there's only the one time that they interact in the movie. And that basically could be a, seen as a dream sequence when it's the Waltz Frave and Che right towards the end of, uh, of the movie. And it's like, okay. Does she know that he's there? Is he there? Is he the voice of the people? What is this character? Again, sorry to keep harping on this, but it was just strange. You're never going to get an answer. It's just not well-defined. And like I said, my biggest problem with that is even if I had a moment of like, I don't know, repose or some satisfied, you know, chord that ended in something that, you know, felt like there was some resolution. Mm -hmm. I always had Che right back in my face going, don't forget about these. You suck at these. I can't even have a moment to say, you know, Avita was happy and successful. Mm-hmm. As far as the oligarchs go, there is like a kind of scene where the, you know, they're, you know, they're, they're clucking hens over, you know, what a slut she is, blah, blah, blah. And I think you are supposed to feel for Madonna and the, the slut shaming they do on her. Evita, excuse me. <laughs> the, the lines are very blurry in this movie. But there's also like constant jokes about it from Che and, you know, and from the rest of the movie about her being a whore or an ex whore at this point. Like speaking of things that probably wouldn't play very well today. I don't know. They kind of rubbed me the wrong way. And a couple of them were, in fact, pretty funny. But what's the like, what's the lyric that's always something something about that you are more to be laid? 
Right. Right. Yeah. They do that a couple of times. Your job is to be laid or whatever. Right. She should get it in her head. She should knock it out of bed. Yeah. She should get into her head. She should not get out of bed. She should know that she's not paid. To be loud and to be laid. Slut! The military who takes showers wearing towels. <laughs> that was an odd scene. Don't show that shot. Just have waist up if you're going to do that. I didn't understand that. Speaking of the wall, I, I tried to rewatch the wall before this episode, but it's not streaming anywhere. Nor is Bugs Me Alone. Oh, that now that's a shame. That is a huge shame. I think Alan Parker's stuff. I just rewatched the commitments right after he passed away. That's I think is probably certainly his most popular. I think probably his best. But no one showering in towels in that one. No, no. It's a it's a it's a very odd scene in a very like otherwise pretty literal musical to have like this stagey thing of them showering in towels. The bit about the Italian admiral that's played by Jay in the musical. Like it, you know, it makes sense because you reuse characters, right? When you're in a musical, you only have how many people, as opposed to a cast of thousands, like you were saying, a Cecil B. DeMille, you know, the the huge historical epic, but. Here we have, like, okay, we're going to have uh, Che put on, like, an eye patch or whatever, and now he's the admiral. And so, again, he's he's bagging on her the whole time, but he's the one who gets to say, you know. Did you hear that? They called me a whore. They actually called me a whore. Senor Peron, it's an easy mistake. I'm still called an admiral, yet I gave up the sea long ago. Again, it's a laugh line. I laughed a little bit, but they really didn't hit it. You know, they didn't punch any of the humor. It seems like they actively tried to take the camp out of the musical. I do recall one other instance where Che does, in fact, interact with Madonna Evita. That's the scene where it's like, She's in her mansion, and he is like with at the gates with the rest of the peasants. Like, do you represent anything, any other cause now but your own? And I think that's actually a good, actually a good scene because Madonna does in fact look very angry at this intrusion on her life. It's like, well, I will have my charity, and that will solve everything. Did Evita answer to anybody in real life? So to have this Che that she was supposedly in conversation with or at odds with, was that anything resembling what happened to her in her 33 years at all? Or did she, right. did anybody ever tell her no? Madonna and Che, like that one instance where they're actually like, she does actually seem angry at him backbiting the entire time. Like, I feel like that is the only time where we feel like Ava is a match for Che because for much of the movie, it feels like she is experiencing her life. Her life is being narrated for her rather than she is an active participant in it. Mm-hmm. Which I think is what I didn't like about the overarching themes of Che constantly telling me what his take is on Evita. I never got a chance to really know Evita. Well, and I feel like I know the Evita of the stage a lot more. And I think it's because the actresses there have more presence and we do take a little bit more time. Even when I am, I don't know, 50 rows back or whatever, I can see on the actress's face the disdain. To me, one of the biggest tragedies is that there are filmed or videotaped versions of certain performances of Avita with Lupone and Patankin and Gutton, but there isn't the filmed 
stage musical. And that's what I really wish they would have done. We could fucking watch Cats the musical if we wanted to. Not the movie, but the stage performance. We could watch Sweeney Todd. We could watch Pippin. There are so many musicals from that time. You know, Chorus Line, all this stuff. Great. But where is that version of Evita? And as far as I know, like there are versions that are out there recorded. You can go to probably to New York and check it out from a library, but there's nothing out there online as far or like on DVD or VHS where it's like, I can now watch, I can watch certain performances and they'll knock your fucking socks off, but I can't watch the whole thing. I think you're hitting the nail on the head here from a producer standpoint and why it has or has not had multiple revivals is that this movie may be, showed more than even the stage play ever did you know, in a glaring way, how problematic the piece is. Problematic how? Problematic at, to turn into a film or to remake as a stage version. I think problematic from what, what is, what are, what are we left with? How does it play today? How does it play in 2020? How does it play hmm. as opposed to, you know, lofting that out there to think of from a producer standpoint, why do I want to give you $10 million to put Evita back on Broadway? let alone turn it into a fantastic filmed version of it, like Hamilton. Like, we we dance around this, like, of a many the many ways that this has aged very strangely. Now we are, you know, as Americans, we just sat through a four years of Donald Trump. How is that going to change the way we see this now, especially since he was such a big fan of it? It was so funny reading an article where the author was talking about like, well, here we are in the age of Obama and blah, blah, blah. And like, well, we could say that Hillary is like this character. And I'm just like, well, you kind of could, but you know, if you really want to take it to the farthest thing, like back in the seventies, you could see this as being about Thatcherism. I'm sure when Lupone was on stage, you could look at this as being like Reaganism. And now it's very much about Trumpism. You know, you see like, yeah, we, we still have plenty of beef here in the United States, but there's other things like the record employment, all of this stuff. Like you could, I mean, for fuck's sake, the, the foundation that Ava uh, creates and, you know, skims a little bit of money off the top. That sounds a lot like that cancer charity where, uh, you know, the, the boys and the girl can't even go near a charity anymore because they fucking stole from people with cancer. Oh, that's, that's yet another thing. Whereas like the, the thing about the money, are we supposed to think this charity is good because, you know, they did do charitable things with it or is it like, are we supposed to feel, you know, this is like a scam. Ebert had a review of the iron lady, the Margaret Thatcher biopic where the, the only, the key line there was like, Margaret Thatcher is a person that everyone has an opinion on, except the makers of this movie. I think that's a cut and paste. That's a cut and paste. Use it, use it, Mike. That's awesome. Rest in peace, Roger Ebert. That's like just the perfect cutting line that explains the problem. And honestly, I don't feel like they even really much cared about the politics of the, the time. At least that's at least the makers of the movie. As you tell me, there's more of it in the musical. I don't know why they wanted to make it, except to get an Oscar. Then you can talk about "You Must Love Me." which you've used the term Oscar bait before. And here we go. We're going to create a new song for this musical so that we can have it nominated for an Oscar because you can't have these old songs. 
nominated for anything. Uh, you know, we, we already won the Tony for Don't Cry For Me, Argentina, all those years ago. We had a number one hit when the concept album came out. But yeah, we have to have something. And for fuck's sake, it did get nominated because who knows how the fuck the song nominations work for the Oscars. It always seems like the worst shit in the world gets nominated. <laughs> that is true. Was that the first one to do that? The first musical adaptation to add an extraneous song to, uh, I think it was. It could be. I mean, I know they've done that before, but... Was it the first one to get nominated, or was it the first musical ever to turn itself into a film and then add new new uh, music? Specifically to get an Oscar, yeah, like... I think it might. I can't think of any uh, any ones that did that before, but because you know musicals were not a big important thing in the in the in the cinema for a few decades before Evita. Well, how many were there before? Like Cabaret. Like what other great movie musicals were there? I don't think they added one to a chorus line. Not that that would have gotten an Oscar anyway, because it was terrible. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Like The Wiz, maybe. I don't think there are any new material in The Wiz. Of course, that, this is like. Uh, mandatory for musical adaptations now. Did they do that for Chicago? Yes. Oh, they yes. Did? Oh, yes. The the last song they do in the in the music in the movie that is new, and I think it was nominated, and I think it maybe it won. Let me. I'm at a computer. I I just don't even know how I would ask Jeeves that. Not that he's going to listen, but one of my very good friends, Andrew Wyatt, wrote "Shallow" for "A Star Is Born," so I want to say that's a great song that won best music. <laughs> Yeah, there was a new song added to Chicago. It uh, did not win. It lost to Eminem that year. Was it for uh, Zeta Jones or who sang it? It was uh, the both of them. They they both sang it right at the end. Yeah, they're always star vehicles, right? Speaking of, Madonna want, really wanted the Velma Kelly role for Chicago also. I'm not saying she would have won an Oscar like Catherine Zeta Jones, but I can see her playing it. You did a Todd in the Shadows about Chicago, right? I've talked about Chicago. It, it's come up a lot, but now that I've seen it on... Broadway and now on the, the movie as an adaptation, just uh, bring, making it work on a screen. I think that more than anything is what got it the Oscar because that is a hard movie to adapt. I mean, a hard musical to adapt. And they did it. The movie much better than the musical. They managed to adapt it very well in a way that so many musicals just do not, including, of course, uh, the one we're talking about. And, of course, Cats. Now that that's. Did they add a new song for Cats? Oh, yes. Andrew Lloyd Webber and Taylor Swift collaborated on, I think it got a Golden Globe nomination, actually. And then they just kind of, after the movie came out, was like, we are withdrawing all our FYCs. Again, this is like exactly one of those things. Andrew Lloyd Webber does not translate very well off the stage. I like the Jesus Christ Superstar movie a lot. But that is very similar in a lot of ways to the stage play. I mean, is talking about like cast of thousands that they did for Evita. No, they kept the cast so small for Jesus Christ Superstar that it made sense. That whole thing of them showing up in a fucking bus at the beginning of the, the movie. It's like, okay, great. That's what we have. We have these few people here yeah they have a couple crowd scenes like the hosanna stuff but for the most part it's just about jesus the disciples and the pharisees and then you get herod and Pilate thrown in and that's the thing too is like we're talking about another suitcase in another hall like that's basically king herod's song that is the showstopper like okay like you said paul it gives our our leads a chance 
to go backstage and have a break. It gives Jesus a little bit of time where he doesn't have to sing. You get King Herod and the whole thing just changes and becomes this whole different thing for like, you know, seven minutes. And then it goes back to the story. Another suitcase in another hall is this wonderful chance for a younger up and coming and for the ingenue to get this star vehicle. You don't have to put the pressure of the entire musical on her, but my God, is it always a showstopper when she sings that. And you also get that that last line of don't ask anymore. And it's usually like, okay, she's going to be taken care of. Whoever this person is, is going to be all right. You know, it's usually like Che will be like, don't ask anymore and like kind of walk her off the stage or whatever. And you feel like, okay, she might bounce back from this. But in this one, I'm surprised they didn't just take her off screen. And then you hear gunshots. It's brutal. Like even if she'd gotten to sing her full song, it'd be brutal. And they put so much space in between another suitcase and another hall and then the reprise of it in that moment that it's just like – usually it's like pretty close together. Mm, not this one. Mm-mm. There's a lot of space. Also, it's like it is Andrea Core. Andrea Core has just a heartbreaking melancholy to her voice and her two lines that she gets to sing, it's like – devastating. It's like, there is no future for this poor woman. This doesn't make any sense in the film when Madonna sings it. It doesn't. You could have done something with it to give some exposition to the character. Through suitcase, through halls with suitcases. Well, and again, it gives you this idea of you have Ava as the schemer. Oh, but it's sad when a love affair dies, but when we You've got that song, and then you've got her also singing Another Suitcase in Another Hall, which is the flip side of the I'm the deposed mistress. And it's like, no, no, (laughs) you are one or you're the other in this. You're not both. We can't have you be the schemer and plotter and climbing your way up the social ladder and just doing whatever the fuck you need to do in order to get from, you know, the the dance halls to the radio to the movies to Perone's mistress. Fuck everything else. I'm climbing my way to the top. Oh, wait, no, let's feel sad for her. No. If I can if I can make a small confession, I'd don't think I really like the music to Evita. Like, not really any of it. I get, like, I get Jesus Christ Superstar and I get Phantom. Evita does not really do much for me. It's kind of a, like, Don't Cry For Me Argentina kind of always left me cold. And if I, if I don't get that one, I'm not going to get the, the musical. But a lot of it, also, I, I think I feel comfortable in saying is just straight bad. Like the, I want to be a part of B. Bad or mad? Bad. Bad with a a little both, yeah. Bad with a B.A. Mm-hmm. I want to be... <laughs> the B.A. Big Apple. Yes. I have a confession. They used to, for whatever fucking reason, when they had the like Broadway in Detroit version of this, the, the touring version, they would advertise the Evita during Saturday morning cartoons when little Mike White was sitting around in Riverview, Michigan, watching cartoons and just waiting for the next one to come on, they would have this commercial and it would just start off with all of these people doing the Don't cry for me, Argentina. You should- 
close to a being immortal. That's all they wanted. Not much to ask for. The truth is, I never left you. All through my wild days, my mad existence. That's right, Evita. Stamp your feet and clap your hands. You've got a lot to celebrate. Seven Tony Awards, including Best Musical for Evita, Argentina's instant queen and overnight saint. And only a few seem to notice she simply seduced a country. It literally scared me as a little kid. I've gone back and I've watched the commercial since then, and I'm like, there's nothing really scary about this. But man, did it freak me out. All these people just like, Evita, and then, you know, Mandy Patankin kind of bursts into the crowds. You live in beauty. And I'm like, oh my God, what is this thing? Hey, Vita, ho, Vita, 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 ho. Anytime I'm left with something as a musician that I enjoy, mm-hmm. I'm right back. And that's why I asked Todd if he meant mad or bad. I'm yeah. back to some like madness. Like it's like in Argentina and then you're just like, oh, my God. Like it just feels like it's to me, it's a musical assault with a few songs in between that are worthwhile. Like and that's why I can't stand those supposed wretched achieves that um, the speak singing that uh, turns it into an opera, unfortunately. It's all over the place. I, I read somewhere that like they were attracted to it because I was like, "Ooh, we could do like tangos, like we the, the rhythms of Argentina." But like, I, there's a couple of those, and then there's like straight up like '70s soft rock sax solos and uh, like synthesizers and like, oh, that sax solo. When mm. was the last speaking of tango? When was the last time you were really sad about something and you grabbed a partner and slow danced? Tuesday. It's all over the movie is these these couples doing a sad crying tango. I'm like, what is that? Well, you know, not since the pandemic, but before then. <laughs> yeah, socially distanced, right? Yeah. It just made me so sad though thinking about this and I thought like and before I move on, I I enjoy the music for this. I really like this, but I completely respect your guys' opinions. I was so sad thinking about theater and live theater and i'm sure you know this pain paul (laughs) which is just like man the good old days when we could go to live theater and see performances and experience that with an audience you know there have been revivals of evita in recent years you talked about the ricky martin one there are other ones there are still or used to be local community theaters, high schools, people putting on musicals. And I was tempted to look up, like, is Evita playing anywhere in Michigan? No, nothing is playing. <laughs> no. Nothing is playing. It's just, it's so sad. This whole month, we're going to be talking about musicals. And yeah, this is a very different musical than, say, like a Blues Brothers, which is a different type of musical. But nobody's putting on hair. For you to talk about musicals right now, because that's what we need right now, Mike, is us to remember and, and bring them back as soon as we humanly possibly can. But right now that's all we're left with is film. So I just did a, you know, we were, when we got shut down, uh, we had, we were seven weeks into an eight week uh, rehearsal period for the, um, for the musical, the pajama game. Oh. And I just finished after now 11 months of uh, working on it and rehearsing it. We did it virtually really difficult and left about, 80% of the choreography on the cutting room floor because we can't get together and dance. You know, we still did what we could with it, but uh, to be able to pull something up virtually 
is not theater. It's film. Oh, but it's sad when the live theater dies. This is the perfect time for Fosse because you can still do jazz hands on Zoom. I think you could do a pretty good sublock tango over Zoom. I just feel like it's the the classic middle brow biopic, the classic middle brow Oscar bait, the classic middle brow Broadway adaptation. It reminds me quite. It's it's the Les Mis twenty twelve of ninety six. Like it was a big deal at the time, and within like with a year of space, you can like actually that one not great. Uh, it's not. It doesn't have the lows, the low, low lows of Les Mis. But I feel like if I were to watch one, I'd actually prefer Les Mis because it it's, it leaves more of a taste, I guess. And Avita just didn't stick. It's so disappointing when they take something amazing and that somebody like Mike White loved Avita, and they mm-hmm. do it such a disservice, just the same way the Les Mis movie did. I'm just so excited about that coming out, and then I wanted to kill myself. <laughs> Saw it twice in the theater, and the second time I knew when I needed to go to the bathroom during Bring Him Home. So I wish that we had been able to see. Again, the stage version of that. Give me the Hugh Jackman stage adaptation. Give me Hugh Jackman and Boy From Oz. I would love to see the the stage play of Boy From Oz with him in it. I think Les Mis and Evita both kind of fail the same way as movies. They were filmed too realistically. Like, maybe this isn't uh, uh, maybe this isn't the right material for realism. Maybe it's just not. It's a really good point. Going back to Jesus Christ Superstar, yeah, they're in the desert, but they had fucking tanks show up in that movie. That made no fucking sense for uh, a period accurate portrayal, but it works for a movie. Carl Douglas being chased around by tanks in the desert, guys with shiny military helmets. It's a 1970 movie. It's perfect for it. All right, let's go ahead and take another break, and we're going to play preview for next week's show. Let the sun shine in. Yeah. 
the sunshine in. Hair, the film. That's right, we'll be continuing Musical Month next week with a look at Milos Forman's hair. Until then, I want to thank my co-hosts, Paul and Todd. So, Todd, what has been keeping you busy, sir? Well, I continue to do my uh, YouTube uh, work. I review music online. Check me out at Todd in the Shadows. That's YouTube.com slash Todd in the Shadows. Or you can uh, listen to my podcast, where me and my podcast, that's ho co-host Danny Roth. We argue about different songs and which one is better. It's called Song vs. Song. Check that out if you like nerds pointlessly arguing. We're the only one on the internet. The only nerds arguing podcast. We're the only ones. You really state your claim there. Yeah, I can't think of any other show like that. (laughs) And Paul, what's the haps with you, bud? I just rebooted or relaunched my own website, palmow.com, where you can go and check out the the varying uh, social medias, the things that I'm doing. Um, Again, a stage director by trade and a voice teacher have both you know, made me do a deep dive into anything virtual. So most of my voice lessons are virtual and uh, I've done several virtual cabarets over the past uh, eight or nine months. And so you can check all those out on my YouTube page uh, as well as we're doing, you know, we just got done doing a bunch of holiday stuff. So uh, doing everything we can to do digital theater, virtual theater, but we can't wait to get back actually into the theater. Um, I did uh, start my own black box theater two years ago, which we had to uh, shut down our sophomore season, but we are hoping to start that back up in June, fingers crossed and vaccines in everybody's pocket. Uh, Yes. It's a big, it's a big prayer, but uh, keeping busy. I did want to tell you that I'm very disappointed that you didn't sing this entire time. We had talked yesterday that you're going to sing all of your opinions. I'd like to give it a C plus. (laughs) 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 That's perfect. Thank you again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. you also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. It won't be easy. You think it's strange when I try to explain how I feel that I still want your love after all that I've done. You won't believe me All you will see is a guy you once knew Although he's dressed up to the nines At sixes and sevens with you
Have I said too much? There's nothing more I can think of to say to you. All you have to do is look at me to know that every word is true. So don't cry for me, Argentina. The truth is I never left you. All through my wild days, my mad existence, I kept my February 1935 in Buenos Aires, a polo match between a team of leading Argentine players and the touring British side. The British ambassador said he had never seen a social occasion quite like it. Even by the standards of Buenos Aires society, the gathering at the polo ground glittered. The rose and the demelas, the hampers from Herod's, the clothes, the diamonds, the crystal, the wines, the procession of nannies from England and France. The result of the match, oh yes, the home team won, but as the British ambassador pointed out, that did not reflect badly on British horsemanship. Three of the Argentine players were educated at Eton. 
Yes, give me credit, I'll find ways of paying. If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.